Welcome to the Weekly Standard Podcast. We'll be with you in a moment after a brief word from our sponsor. Regardless of party or political labels, there are amazing examples of real-life success stories happening across America. Local leaders are showing how to solve problems in healthcare, education, and other issues Washington just can't fix. Experience those stories in the new book, Falling in Love with America Again, by Jim DeMint and the Heritage Foundation. Get it today at inlovewithamerica.com. That's inlovewithamerica.com. Welcome to the Weekly Standard Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Graham. With us from the Weekly Standard, Bill Crystal. Bill, it's been a fascinating week. Lost planes and lost superpowers. Yeah, and I'm, you know, it's a terrible human tragedy, the lost plane, but the uh, lost superpower, which is us, lost under the leadership or lack thereof of President Obama, is a real problem for the world. And I, I write about it in the editorial in the magazine this week. It's up on the website. And, you know, three years is a long time to have uh, a president who doesn't believe, I think, really, in American leadership around the world. He's so averse to uh, the use of force or even threatening the use of force or even looking strong that, uh, you know, Putin is not the first and is not going to be the last, I'm afraid, who tests us. And, and in Putin's case, he's going to decide it, you know, it's worked out great. He's got the Crimea. He can now threaten Ukraine. So it's very worrisome. I think it's important for those of us who think Obama is wrong to, to hold, you know, very high uh, the, the flag of opposition, partly for its own sake, partly for the sake of the American public and the elections that are coming up, but really for the sake of people abroad, too, so they know there's not a bipartisan consensus on U.S. weakness. So they know that if they can hang on for three years, maybe maneuver a little bit, uh, that there might be cavalry coming to the rescue mm-hmm. in January 20th, 2017. I actually feel that there's almost a civic obligation for Republicans, conservatives, and, and Democrats who might agree with uh, American le- uh, a position of American leadership to really speak out now. Uh, you uh, mentioned in your uh, editorial that uh, history suggests eras of retrenchment appear like weakness to the rest of the world. Uh, the operative word there is appear. Yeah, David Sanger in the New York Times, who had this incredible comment, just he says, he reports it very matter-of-factly, that Obama, President Obama privately acknowledges that we're in an era of American retrenchment. retrenchment. And then Sanger says, you know, that can appear like weakness to the rest of the world, but it appears like weakness because it is weakness. Exactly. And I didn't bother dotting this I and crossing this T in the editorial, but of course, the previous eras of retrenchment that Sanger mentions after World War One, after World War Two, in the 70s after Vietnam, uh, led to very dangerous situations. You know, our retrenchment in the 20s led to the 30s, and we know what that was about. Mm-hmm. Our retrenchment after World War Two, understandable, after genuine war weariness after that war, uh, you know, led to uh, Stalin feeling emboldened in Eastern Europe, and then, of course, North Korea uh, after Vietnam. It led to Carter, and it is only reversed by Reagan. So um, there's a pretty simple and clear, I think, historical pattern here. Um, the title of the editorial, Superpower Live, Once Lived Here, I think it is, uh, refers to Colin Powell, who said, um, I think it was in, just as the Cold War was ending in the, in the first Bush administration, the George H.W. Bush administration, uh, there was some debate in, about how, much, how strong a military we needed. And Powell said, look, the main thing is people around the world, everyone needs to know that when they you know, sort of look at the U.S., look at the door, um, uh, you know, at the, on, the, on the House of uh, America, it has a big sign that says superpower lives here, right. which is a good way of putting it. And you deter a lot of troublemaking if people have that sense. And I'm, what, what most worries me about the current situation is I don't think friends or enemies around the world have that sense anymore. Do you think that President Obama realizes that the Russians aren't laughing with him they're laughing at him. I mean, I you know, you can seize on one little data point as being 
significant. But the just when I saw a tweet from one of the sanctions victims in Russia that actually had a smiley face. That's what we've been reduced to. President smiley face getting mocked the same way that 14 year old girls mock each other on Twitter. You know, I, I don't know. I, I, I've been saying for so long, I've been writing for so long. Does President Obama not understand the consequences of this? I honestly think he does understand the consequences. And I guess if he were here really in private, he'd say, okay, look, I'll, I'll take some of that mocking, but it's better than sending troops. It's better than causing a confrontation. We need Russia's help with Syria and Iran. So we're not going to really do anything about Syria and Iran. So right. we need their help to kind of find a diplomatic path of great, gradual retreat instead of total collapse. I suppose maybe he'd say something like that privately. I do now believe that he really, it's not that he doesn't understand what's happening. He understands what's happening, what's happening. Uh, to some degree, he wants what's happening, or, or let's be fair and say that he, he thinks it's inevitable somehow that we're going to have to retrench, that uh, people are going to throw their weight around some in the world, and there's not much we can do about it. And he's just trying to figure out ways to kind of cover that up a little bit and minimize the embarrassment. Uh, speaking of knowing what's going on, it's been obvious since the war on poverty got launched that simply spending trillions of dollars on poverty programs doesn't do anything to uh, – uh, to change poverty, what it does is it changes who's currently suffering under poverty. Paul Ryan got into, uh, well, he got attacked, I'll put it that way, repeatedly for suggesting that there might be a problem with uh, communities where people live generation after generation without even going out and trying to become part of the mainstream economy. And what struck me when I heard it, Bill, was how much it sounded like what President Obama said when he launched his big his uh, 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 um, Brothers Keeper initiative. Right, and I, I actually I quoted President Obama, one of the things he said this morning on, on TV, you know, defending, while well, I was defending Paul Ryan, Ryan said nothing different from what Obama said, but I put it even a little less provocatively. Uh, the Journal has some quotes this morning, I think, too, from President Obama. Rich Lowry has a good piece on this in political. It's really unbelievable that we have to defend Paul Ryan, honestly, though, that we even, that this has become a phony controversy. I mean, what he said was totally straightforward, factual, true. Um, uh, he's now being attacked for citing Charles Murray, whose recent book is an excellent book. I was on a panel with him at Harvard last week. Uh, it's actually only about white America, so it doesn't even have to do with race. And, and Ryan didn't mention race in his comments either. Uh, but even if he had, Obama mentions race and said, acknowledges and says, and not just acknowledges, but stresses that the African-American community is suffering more from fatherless families and, and, and uh, people not getting jobs at young ages and so forth, uh, not entering the workforce, suffering more than the than, than, than Caucasians or Asians, but leaving race aside, and that's what Murray does in his new book, there's a big problem uh, of an increasing culture of poverty. It's leading to a certain kind of two Americas. It's leading to some of the inequality the left claims to be so concerned about. So the idea that, Paul, that we can't talk about that, that we can't uh, be intelligent in our discussion, honest in our discussion, that's a terrible thing. I mean, it's going to make it even harder to address these problems in an intelligent and serious way than it is already. Uh, I think Paul Ryan, who's, who I very much like, as you know, I think Ryan made a mistake, actually, in that kind of semi-apology right. he offered. I mean, there was no, he, he said nothing wrong. He should not have given an inch on this. And and I think it's very important that others you know, stand up and make the case that this is just an outrageous attempt to suppress debate and free speech, really. I need my Republicans to realize that they're in a fight and to pay attention. Watch what kind of punches the other side is throwing. The other side is throwing every time you mention, uh, you know, an issue 
uh, that they can't answer, which is right now about 90 percent of the issues. Things just aren't going their way. They're going to come back with race and sexism. That's what they're going to do. And my question for you, Bill, is does number one, does the leadership understand this, that this is the universe they live in, whether they like it or not? And number two, do they have a strategy for answering it? Or is it always going to be we apologize? We didn't mean it. We apologize. We didn't mean it. I think they understand it, but I think they're scared of it. And I don't think that's so true of Paul Ryan, but I think it is true of a lot of congressional leaders, a lot of the can- some of the candidates for Congress. And look, sometimes there's no need to pick excessive fights, and right. one shouldn't be foolish and all that. But I-, I totally agree with what you're implying. I mean, if you just start to look scared, it just encourages the bullies to pick on you more. Um, if, if you look uncertain in what you believe, it, it, it just sends the impression that people sort of think they have positions that there's something, something wrong with them. You know, it's sort of you're embarrassed to have them. Because only conservatives have the views they have is they think they're good for people, right. men and women, rich and poor, and they should be strong in defending those views. And I, they really, I, I think it's a huge problem with Republicans and conservatives that kind of, sometimes they say foolish things, granted, but right. the, the defensiveness with which they uh, say and 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 the uh, awkward the the, the sort of uh, timidity with which they defend themselves when they say correct things, that's as much of a problem. And ha- not having a strategy is the big political problem. In other words, figure out how you're going to do it. Whether it's a direct open outreach to women and to black voters, ex- laying out here's how our policies will benefit you or something, but simply saying our strategy is going to be every time there's a controversy just to lay down, you know, jump on the grenade. Uh, when there's not even really a grenade, that's not going to work. I, I think another thing that's not going to work, Bill, is trying to win the Republican primary standing up in front of the students of UCAL Berkeley. I'm not sure that's really a hotbed of GOP primary voters. No, I would have. And Rand Paul went there this week, and, and the left with the liberal media naturally is praising him for going into the lines then. But what did he say when he went into the lines right. then? I've spoken to Berkeley, too, but I defended the Iraq war there. Rand Paul attacked the NSA, attacked their intelligence gathering, and attacked the war on drugs. Well, I don't think those are unpopular positions for the students at Berkeley. So we went and pandered to the students at Berkeley. I'd love for another Republican now, a Ted Cruz or Scott Walker or Mike Pence or Paul Ryan, to ask, hey, can I come speak at Berkeley and defend uh, a strong American foreign policy defend, um, you know, uh, the military, uh, defend conservative economic uh, ideas, defend the conservative version of a war on poverty or an effort to reduce poverty, that would be impressive. So I think Rand Paul is getting kind of slightly ridiculous good press from the liberal media. I mean, that's what Rand Paul believes. I'm not accusing him of, of saying something he hasn't said elsewhere. But the, I mean, why is it a surprise that he was well-received at Berkeley? And I very much agree with you. It's not gonna. It's not gonna be very attractive in Republican party. I thought it was a smart move when he stood up and showed how to recycle plastic bottles by turning them into a bong. I thought that was helpful. You know, it's both pragmatic. It's DIY. I'm of course I'm I'm kidding. But here's what. This is the flip side of what we just talked about. The fact that if you're going to get good press just by showing up, why shouldn't more Republicans show up? And, yeah, no, you know, that and that's, that's the other it. side of this. Now, you, you, uh, one thing that wasn't reported very much is that Rand Paul actually did talk about the need to lower taxes uh, and, uh, you know, the, to roll back government growth. And the crowd sat there quietly because they don't support it. Right. So he said some other things. But the point is, let's get Paul Ryan and Chris Christie and uh, well, anyone not named Bush. Let's get them out in front of groups where they're not expecting and at least pick up those opportunities to try to get people to rethink their attitudes about the GOP. 
Also, I think it. I, I agree with that. And so I respect Rod Rand Paul for doing it. Don't, don't get me wrong. I just don't think he deserves, you know, a sure. huge amount of credit. But it's fine. But you're right. Others should do it too, and they should go in and defend unpopular positions. If you get attacked by a few Berkeley students or faculty, probably faculty more likely actually these days, administrators, well, maybe it'll give them a little practice at not being intimidated. Exactly. They can win those debates. I mean, there's no question that. And Paul Ryan, of course, has done this, and some of the others have spoken in hostile environments and done very well. But uh, I did a event I think I met with Charles Murray at uh at Harvard last week and Charles was great and he didn't he didn't pull any punches. He he was polite and people were civil mm-hmm. to him in return. Uh he he didn't go out of his way to say anything in in a provocative or an unpleasant way, obviously. But he, he he articulated the arguments of his book and people listened and uh took it in and I found myself thinking, you know, there were some intelligent counter arguments and made you think a little bit more uh, hearing those arguments. So, I, yeah, conservatives could only benefit, I think, from making their case uh, everywhere. We're going to finish up by doing something you should never do, which is making your boss mad uh, or surprising him. Bill, I have been asked by a local magazine to answer the question, if I could ask Barack Obama one question, what would it be? He's coming to speak at a high school uh, graduation near me uh, in, in a couple of months. And put me on the spot. They put me on the spot, so I'm going to put you on the spot. My first answer was, uh, hey, Mr. President, Regulars or menthols? But I don't think that's the way I'm going to go. Uh, the other idea was, I like my wife. Do I have to keep her too? Uh, <laughs> that would be good. <laughs> okay. If you could ask President Obama one question, what would it be? I don't know. I'm so upset about the national security situation. I suppose it would be something like that. And do you really want to be the president, the only president, I would say, in, since 19, since Roosevelt, certainly, mm-hmm. who has presided um, in a complacently over a decline in American power. I mean, Jimmy Carter was a bad president for the first three years, but he saw what had happened in reverse course. Do you not see, Mr. President, that you need to reverse course in foreign and defense policy? I guess that would be the question. That's much better than mine. My final question was, if a train leaves Chicago going west at 100 miles an hour, how long, <laughs> how long before Vladimir Putin takes it over, throws you off, and starts maniacally laughing his way into the night? I, we'll see I if think the yours, pres- yours is excellent in its own way, too, you know? <laughs> This has been the Weekly Standard uh, podcast with Bill Crystal. Please be sure to check weeklystandard.com regularly for podcast updates. I'm your host, Michael Graham.